Welcome to Elixir Talk, the podcast where we discuss your questions about Elixir application design and the state of the ecosystem, and occasionally make jokes about Star Trek. I'm your host, Desmond Bowie. I am one of your hosts, Desmond Bowie, along with my other host, Chris Bell. Hey, Desmond. How's it going? Hey, Chris. You remember last week when I introduced me as you and you as me? Ah, uh, fun times. <laughs> it really threw me for the rest of the episode, so... <laughs> I love that. I love that. that How's the uh, state of the ecosystem? Uh, now you've thrown me. How was the state of the ecosystem? I think it's pretty good. So OTP21 just came out. Nice. Pretty exciting with some optimizations to how they construct maps under the hood. And also a really funny optimization in Erlang that Jose Valim contributed, where if you if uh, they're calling a function with like a OK value tuple, before they would... I think uh, copy it to a new variable just um, by the syntax they had in the function. And by making some change and not having intermediate variable, it sped up compilation times by like 10% or program times by 10%. It was some crazy number. It shows you there's quick wins all over the place, right? Little gains here and there. We, we keep coming back to this in the ecosystem that even though Erlang has been around for decades and is a pretty awesome platform, there's still there's still a lot of little things to do. Definitely. Um, have you already upgraded? No. <laughs> yeah, we haven't either. So uh, no. I think that's on the on the Kaizen backlog for our improvements. But usually upgrades aren't so bad, though. Yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully, hopefully. they won't take too much time. Mm -hmm. And with with that, I wanted to introduce our our special guest for today. Uh, so we have Matt Trudell on the show. Uh, Matt, do you want to say hi? Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me on. I was trying to use a really clever time-based segue, but um, <laughs> my my level of humor is pretty poor. So I don't know. Have you listened to the podcast before, Matt? I listen to it every week. Ah, long-time yeah, listener. I'm a long-time listener, first-time guest. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, it's great to have you on the show. So thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. So we first met Matt at MPEX NYC a couple of weeks ago, where he was a speaker, and gave a talk called Mix New Dash Dash, no, Mix New Beats, recreating the Amen Break with Elixir. The Amen Break, for those who aren't familiar, is a very, very famous drum beat that was originally recorded in a song in the late 60s, I think, has been sampled a zillion times, which I believe is a technical term. I believe it is. It's in all honesty, the official number was something like twenty three hundred times. But I mean, it's it's as a sample, it was really instrumental in drum and bass in particular. Which I mean, you know, there's probably twenty thousand people just making drum and bass music in their bedrooms even today, right? So it's one of those things that they say two thousand. The number in actuality is probably quite a bit higher. I don't know that I could think of two thousand songs. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone used to have your songs in iTunes. You'd actually have a number. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or CDs. CDs. Or CDs. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> wild, wild days. Um, so Matt, do you want to tell us about uh, where you're working right now? And what you sure. Do? Um, so I'm an independent software contractor in, in Toronto, um, specializing mostly uh, these days in Elixir work. Um, so the work that underpinned Beats. I mean, the cool thing that I, the, one of the things that I really enjoyed about Beats, 
um, and about building it in the first place was that it was really a demo um, for a bit of production tooling that we wrote up at the place where I'm consulting these days. Um, so the company that I'm working for nowadays is called FunnelCloud.io. Um, they build what's called a manufacturing execution system. Uh, in a nutshell, it's a software that runs uh, manufacturing plants. Um, and so there's, as you can imagine, there's scheduling, you know, and time-based things all over the place in manufacturing when parts are getting delivered, people going on break, you know, that sort of thing. And um, we had this tool, this library that we'd factored out um, called Skedex that um, we used to underpin all of that stuff. And we essentially wanted to see how fast we could make it run. Uh, and, you know, we... we um, started off by building a, you know, a simple little box that went bing, you know, that was just a, a, a timer that just, you know, made a sound every second to see how accurate the timing was for that. And, you know, sort of one thing led to another. And the next thing you know, we're generating MIDI and, you know, building these ridiculously retro, you know, N-curses console interfaces into this thing. And that's where Beats the Drum Machine came from. You know, I, I think that's really cool that it's, you know, a fun example of like a piece of production tooling. You got to remember to have fun. <laughs> I think um, you said in your talk that you didn't know how to build web interfaces. Is that right? I've never. Well, I, I, at the time, I said I'd never written a line of Phoenix in my life. That's now false. Um, <laughs> the next new bit of infrastructure that I'm um, that I've been building up for Funnel Cloud is um, a uh, essentially a signal multiplexer that sits on top of InfluxDB. Um, so it uses their HTTP uh, plumbing to multiplex out um, signal essentially a fire hose of signal information out to a bunch of consumers and we're using phoenix for that very cool um so yeah. i mean i want to ask you a million questions about skedex but before we get into that do you want to tell us a little bit about how you came across elixir in the first place and what got you into it well it's a bit of a bit of a, a, a meandering or a funny story um so historically i've been an i i've been an ios developer um I kind of my you know I cut my teeth as you know straight out of school doing um, mobile development back in the J2ME days. So this was on you know black and white you know the little phones that ran Snake games and stuff, um, and those things were you know for, for, by today's standards they were pretty you know pretty simplistic. Um, and then the iPhone came along, and at the time I was working, um, I was running a healthcare research team at Toronto General Hospital, and we did um, interventions in consumer healthcare mostly, so using cell phones or, and mobile technology to uh, help streamline and, and uh, you know, help various health outcomes. Um, and so when the iPhone came along, it was kind of, you know, the, the answer to our prayers in a lot of ways, having suffered through J2ME development. And uh, I essentially just went all in on it. And that was in, what was that, 2010, I guess. And only recent, only really came out of the iOS space last year. Um, my first line of Elixir was like last October or so. And, um, you know, I just kind of thought, I you know, the iOS game had to run its course. And it just didn't seem to be... I guess the same youth, you know, the, the same high energy game it was when I got into it. So, you know, I sort of looked at the landscape and said, well, what, you know, Elixirs, I've been meaning to learn that. That looks great, you know, and uh, jumped in and have sort of never looked back since. What was difficult about learning Elixir? Like, what were some of your initial hurdles? 
Um, it's funny. So when I was in university, I, I went to the University of Waterloo, and um, so they have a course there. It's one, regarded as one of the the, the the big three courses that you take that that you can, you can take there. It's called the trains course, and essentially you spend the um, spend the entire semester, and it's the, the, essentially the course is just a term project where you build a, a real-time operating system on bare metal, and then you use it to control a bunch of um, a model train set, essentially. And then there's they have constraints where you know the trains are going and they can't hit one another, and so you have to make sure that you know if they're on a collision course that you throw a switch so they don't move, so they don't collide. Um, and the pattern that they'd used to show us that was essentially I never knew it by the name at the time, but it was the actor model. Um, and so it was it was always something that you know for years I'd said, you know I, I I wish I could write software like that because I remember when I was writing when 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 we wrote MattOS back in uh, in university it was it was such a great paradigm to work in, and so that was a really you know welcome thing to come home to I guess when I started with Elixir you know it just really naturally picked that up, um, but I mean otherwise you know I've always kind of been a very imperative thinker and so the the functional aspects of it are something that. I mean, I've written, you know, I've dabbled in like really functional JavaScript before and, you know, that sort of thing. But um, this was really my first sort of dive into, you know, you have to write things functionally. You know, I, I remember, you know, spending an hour when I first wrote, wondering why I was mutating a variable inside a for loop and wondering why it wasn't sticking. You know, and, and of course, I look at it now and it's like, of, of course, that's, you know, an obvious, an, an obvious oversight. But at the mm -hmm. time, that sort of stuff was really threw me. So uh, what about thinking in processes? How was that for you? So it sounds like you've obviously had a bit of that background in the actor model. Um, yeah. By the way, did you call it Matt OS? Well, it was my friend Matt and I. So there's two of us. He had, he had my, my name's Matt with one T, his is Matt with two T. So it was Matt, apostrophe, parenthesis T, parenthesis OS. So it was, both of us were in it. It was, it was, it was a pretty good, I liked it. We had good nice. branding. It's nice. important to have good branding, right? Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, yeah. So how was that? How was that kind of uh, ramping up in thinking in processes? And well, especially I mean, that's actually I was thinking about that, you know, in, 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 in prep for this for, for this talk today, that one of the things that I, I think is really um, a bit unique about the product that I'm working on now. So this is these things are the, the apps installed in a factory. Right. And it runs on premises because these both because manufacturing is just very much like they want to own everything you know they want to minimize their risk so it's on site so they don't have to worry about outages and you know espionage and that sort of thing um but it the, we really don't have a huge amount of scale right i mean the largest plant we have you know is i don't know maybe a thousand you know devices that we track in it like it's not an enormous scale but um, the issue of performance is, is, is really front and center, right? So we don't really have to worry about, you know, scaling up to, you know, to, uh, to Google size with these things. It's really about, um, being performant at a very, what in most cases, and especially for Elixir is a relatively small scale. And so we can do things with processes that I think a lot of people can't, um, one of the things that I'd mentioned, I think, in, in the talk at MPEX was how, so we have downtime, these scheduled downtimes, which are like when, I, when a plant, a section of the plant goes for a break, or they go for lunch, or the shift is over. And we actually model those in Elixir, each of those breaks as a process, and it just is, is responsible huh. for scheduling itself. And we can do that because we only ever are going to have, at most, a few hundred of those. Right, so processes are incredibly cheap, so we can just throw a hundred processes at it, and it makes the individual processes incredibly easy to write and really easy to debug and reason about. Mm. So, uh, hang on, can you dig a bit deeper into that? So, sure. you you model uh, each 
each break as a process, but then how does that fit into the bigger picture? So um, if you actually look at the Skedex readme, there's a somewhat redacted um, version of this exact pattern, like that I actually cribbed from that exact section of, uh, of the production code. And essentially what it does is we store a record of the database for each of our scheduled downtimes, and it has some information about what the downtime is. And it has, it represents the time that it happens as a cron string. So the string will say, you know, at 9.30 every weekday morning or something. Um, and then when we start up, the the, the, we have the, the, um, when the application starts up, we have a, a, a task that essentially just rips over those records in the database, pulls up the scheduled downtime, extracts the cron field, and then takes those two things and throws them at, a, at SCEDEX and, says, and takes, gets the process back from SCEDEX and throws that at a dynamic scheduler. And so you, you know, have this code that's going to, that's that's marshalling a, a, like what in in you know in, in Ruby or something would be you know this morass of imperative code and it ends up being literally a for loop to do that and then you get to lean on dynamic scheduler to do or dynamic supervisor rather to do um, all of the supervision for it so we don't have to worry about having first class supervision because because Erlang has first class supervision we just use it you mentioned a moment ago that this can work for you because you have a couple hundred processes that you're trying to schedule. Right. And I think one of the benefits of the system is that you could have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or more right. processes that are working. And this was part of the interesting bit of your talk is when you turned up the beats per minute and you were really pushing the edge of the timer. Right. It sounded basically like white noise, right? It was yeah. just like a wall of sound. It was so fast. Yeah. And another interesting thing about that was you were measuring the... Um, not latency, but like how, how, how much drift would there be in the timers at that speed, right? Yeah, and, and the, the answer is there really, there really is none, right? I mean, even at, I think the highest I got in the demo was like 3000 BPM, which if you resolve it down is still like a double digit number of milliseconds. So my question is, if I have uh, processes in my system that I am scheduling constantly, and I think it's a pretty common pattern to do this uh, send after to do some mm -hmm. work. Um, if I have thousands and thousands of processes all doing this at what point does that become a meaningful load on the system well we actually i mean the original like the very 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 earliest uh form of skedex did exactly that it was a thing that we were using internally for a watchdog timer on so when we get signals in from machines um and we have plants that are running hundreds of machines they seem to do it without issue i, I don't know the exact number to, 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 to directly answer your question but I mean, like you've seen those demos of the people that have spun up like 100,000, you know, plus processes and the system just hums along quite happily. Yeah. And I've tried to dig into like how the VM handles timers. And I know that there's a timing wheel that has, I think, 65,000 um, slots that mm -hmm. are kind of the next whatever, like buckets of, of quantized units of time. So I don't know enough about it to say but this is kind of my question is like at what point do you overload the timing wheel and it becomes a strain on the vm right so i actually i, I have some understanding of that because um one of the follow-ons for my talk was essentially notice pointing out the fact that um you only have millisecond level granularity when you schedule stuff via send after um and internally there's an like the the majority of the timings of of, of the time stack inside inside Ertz and inside erlang is is in microseconds there's only a few sort of choke points along the way where they resolve things down to millis and then unwrap it on the other side. And they literally do that in a few places. They divide it by a thousand, they store it in an ETS table, and then the person that reads the table just multiplies it by a thousand. 
even if I have um, a timing wheel in milliseconds, 65,000 milliseconds is not that many Yeah, and, it, and it's interesting because what, what, it, what it ends up resolving to, I spent uh, an afternoon diving on this about a month ago. And um, all basically everything to do with time resolves down to a, uh, a receive. You know how with a receive you can have an, an after block at the bottom, uh -huh. almost like a catch block that has a time in it? That's essentially the primitive that everything else that's time-based in Ertz and in, in the Erlang um, in the Erlang runtime, uh, in the Erlang standard library, they all resolve down to that. That's the uh. actual primitive. There's actually a VM instruction for that. Um, and they say in like gigantic block letters that this must be a 32-bit integer. And I, I, I'm assuming that, you know, there's people that are much smarter than I that know why that's the case. But I, I, it, it, it's not apparent, at least at first glance, why that is. Because that number resolves down to, and if I recall, I think they actually have two different timing wheels and they use them for different granularities. So timers that are far off in the distance go into one wheel and then ones that are very close go into another. Mm. I haven't totally do like I, I haven't totally wrapped my head around that part of the code yet, but I mean timing wheels. That's that's the same approach that the kernel uses. Um, we wrote one in MattOS for God's sake. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. they're um, they're the 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 idiomatic way to handle that. So I, I mean, there's probably a limit at some point. Of course, there is with everything, right? But it would be interesting to see what that is. You just queue up like half a million processes and make them all come do on New Year's Eve or something and see see what kind of hijinks ensue. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, as long as the limit's, you know, far enough into the scaling future, yeah, uh, that's fine. But I think right. we're all sort of curious, like, the system gives this to us, it seems like for free, but is it really free? Right. Chris, thoughts, questions? <laughs> uh, no, I was kind of processing that. I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know if I have any more on that. So we should edit this bit out. Definitely. Likely. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I honestly I haven't dug into the the timing stuff that much to to grok all of this. I'm just a dumb consumer of it. So <laughs> and it just works for me and that's the way I like it, you know. Well, it's actually, you know, it's funny because that's um one of the things that I've been thinking about sort of in my, you know, in in my spare cycles is that because everything res eventually resolves down to that receive block, right? And it and it's a bare integer that goes into that, right? It's receive do after bare integer the timeout. Um, I, I, I've been curious because uh, the ultimate goal of sort of that next workup is to be able to express those timeouts in microseconds. And I, I, I still don't have a very ergonomic way to do that. You obviously can't use a bare integer for it because how would you know which one it is? So do you do like, uh, like do you, do you pass in, you know, uh, a keyword list there, you know, with micros, you know, or, you know, and have it specify specifiable units of time? It's, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of like, I almost wonder if internally they just knew, like if they just thought that milliseconds were going to be good enough forever, you know, when they, when, 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 when they were writing this initially, or if the fact that there's, again, those great big block letters that say this must be a 32 bit integer, you know, just means that there's something there that I just haven't found yet in terms of there's actually a hard reason these are milliseconds. We should uh, we should get someone on the Erlang core team on the podcast at some point, <laughs> and then we can ask them this question and see if yes. they can figure it out. But there must be a good reason, I'm sure. I there Joe and the team are a hundred times smarter than I could ever aspire to be. So I, I'm I'm assuming that they're that you know that all of that stuff is in there for a reason. Definitely. Um, so can you talk a bit more about the Skedex library and the kind of goals of that and uh, like what what's next for it as well? Well, I mean, the the 
the tagline that I use for it is that like we want to essentially make it to uh, scheduling what Gen Server is to to you know to state or to you know to APIs in that sense that you know it it, it I mean in in a, in a in a wildly successful universe I'd love to see it become part of the standard library you know like I think it's that level of fundamentally useful that. Um, you know, because 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 really, it's a hundred percent infrastructure, right? There's no actual, there's no policy to it at all. It's all mechanism, right? And so, you throw a module function argument at it, or even a functional, you know, even a closure, and it will, you know, and and a, and a time to execute, and it'll just it'll just do it, you know. And that I think level of functionality unlocks like the simplicity of that unlocks a ton of functionality. That you know, we're we're still discovering you know clever little usage patterns for it internally. We use it for scheduling cache busting. Uh, we use it to schedule uh, database exports. Um, you know, it's just about completely um, overtaken all of the stuff that we actually use, like the actual cron daemon for on, on on the boxes now. You know, we nice. do it all. We do it all internally. Uh, so something that was really curious, like I was really curious about actually, is how you deploy right now to all these machines as well. Oh boy, that's complicated. So the um, let's let's just say we're waiting on we're waiting with bated breath for the uh, for the improvements that are coming to mix release on this. Um, so we so we tend to be very um, our integrations are pretty heavy, right? So we have you know on the order of dozens of customers, um, and they're all pretty heavy, you know to some degree or other customized and a lot of that customization rolls into the deployments as well so there's you know particular branches that got that 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 um you know that that some organizations get that others don't some people run machine states some people don't some people have the reporting module some people don't um and that all gets factored in because it's essentially the deliverable for us is is a is a vm image right that's that's the ultimate uh that's the ultimate handoff um for us so it um it's a kind of an unholy child of Ansible and Distillery and Docker to actually build stuff. So we have a Docker image that spins up on our local machines that actually compiles it for Linux because um, we all run Macs and uh, compiles it, compiles uh, a mix release for Linux, and then some wizardry that ships that that you know buckets that up and ships it off. I I would love the, the stuff that seems to be coming down the pipe, especially with respect to um, being able to, to to sub in variables. At runtime, at, at deployment time, um, is is really really welcome, because that's you know that's we spent a lot of time struggling with that, and I, I, I don't really see a good answer for it these days, unfortunately. What about uh, so? I was thinking, like, is Nerves a good fit for the kind of stuff you're doing, like more embedded? No, our boxes are actually pretty beefy. Like, they're actual proper machines, right? Uh, they're, right they're actual right. properly spec'd out servers. We, I mean, we've actually there's a few places. Um, Without getting too much into the into the the stuff that's you know behind the confidentiality agreement, there are places where we're looking at deploying more IoT style things mm -hmm. into these environments. But um, whether that's nerves or um, I in a, in a previous um, in a previous hobby life, I uh, was building a uh, an internet radio, and that's actually like in a little woodwork in a little like custom woodworking table radio box. And so I, I dove pretty hard into embedded Linux systems with those, into the open WRT space with those. And um, and there's a ton of overlap there. They both use that and Nerves both use BuildRoot. So there's a huge, you know, there's a really good synergy there. Um, but I, I, I'm i really excited to actually try to use Nerves for something. I, I never have. And it looks like a really, really hype project for that. Definitely. And I think it would be a really good fit for some of the stuff that we're doing.
Yeah, I, I mean, uh, both Desmond and I have a bit of a blind spot for nerves right now. You know, it's it's funny if you look at the um, the demo. So in the, you know in, in in the demo that I did at at, at Impex, the uh, the UI was uh, was you know was one of the one of the few places in the talk that people actually hooted for. You know, when when the, when the uh, when the end, when the curses demo came up, the curses UI rather came up. And uh, and it's the same thing. I gave I gave a cut down version of that talk at the Toronto Elixir meetup a few months ago, and it was the exact same thing. People could care less about the music aspect of it. They were just like, "What is that? What is that interface? Right? It looks like it looks like DOS, right?" And um, there's a I noticed a huge crossover from that and the Nerves folks, right? Which makes sense in a lot of ways because a lot of projects that Nerves fits for you you don't really have much other choice for an interface. Right. You don't have, you know, you may not have the, the overhead or the, you know, it just doesn't logistically fit to do a web interface. So, you know, it's curses all the way. Did you get a chance to talk to Frank Hunleth at MPEX? Yes. In fact, he and I uh, did some work up on the uh, the X, EXN curses library uh, or EX curses rather uh, in the lead up to uh, to MPEX. Um, I had a good talk with him at the, at the, at the conference as well. It was um yeah, he uh, he did a huge workup on the Curses library recently to sort of modernize a bunch of it. Mm-hmm. It was uh, Doctor Freeze had put it out like four years ago, three or four years ago, and it it just withered on the vine. It looked like it's the sort of thing that he need you know he needed for some project, and then just you know it just started to bit rot. And Frank picked it up and modernized a bunch of it, um, fixed a bunch of sort of niggling bugs that I'd had in the workup to the MPEX demo. Yeah, that's yeah. cool. It's funny to hear. In 2018, people cheering for a DOS-like interface. It listen when it works, it works, right? We, <laughs> we can't have we can't have web interfaces on everything. Uh, can't we? <laughs> yeah, I guess like we're like we're very much like web centric, right? Like we everything that I've built in the last I don't know like 10 years has probably been a web-based interface, basically. Wait a second. I mean, there are those people out there who prefer like. Uh, Git GUIs, I do not prefer Git GUIs. No, no, I like no, that's... command line Git. So I just want to clear up any confusion that I'm some key sheeter. Also, you're probably saying it wrong because it's GUI, but you know we could get into a holy war about this. GIF or GIF? Is it GIF or GIF? Oh, don't do it, Matt. <laughs> don't do it. At least you didn't say, is it tuple or tuple? Oh, uh, I don't <laughs> even know what I say anymore. I think I say tuple. Yeah, I don't know. Tuple. Um, tuple. With a CH, obviously. Tuple? <laughs> so, Matt, what's next? Like, what's next for you? What's on your radar in the Elixir space? Uh, I'm, like I said before, uh, I'm, I, I'm just starting to pick up Phoenix now for that influx um, workup, and I'm, I'm really stoked about that. It's such a, it's such a, it's such a perfect fit, um, you know, in terms of what it's designed to do and the things that people hype up about channels and stuff. You know, like everyone's like. You should use Phoenix because it's got, you know, it scales forever because of channels. And I'm like, I actually get to use that, like, you know, for a reason that's kind of off label, which I think is going to be really cool. Um, most of the stuff that I do day to day at Funnel Cloud is sort of more infrastructure. Um, you know, I, I, it's, it's kind of a fun, a, a, a neat position to be in because I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I've sort of senior enough as a developer and, you know, I've, I've been working with these guys on and off for years. That I understand the domain enough well enough as well that I can sort of be like that over there. That's that that part's infrastructure, right? And this part over here, that's where the that's where the domain expression is, right? And you know, I think Skedex is a really good sort of manifestation of that. But I'm 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 hoping that this uh, this multiplexer is going to be the same thing. 
you know, because mm-hmm. these sorts of tools, also, these sorts of things also lend themselves to be open sourced quite, you know, quite, quite naturally too, right? If you have this bit of thing, you know, this, this bit of code that does something that's very specifically just mechanism, it just does what it does without any ties into your product or ties into your domain, you know, those sorts of things get extracted very, very well. You know, and that was the story with SkedX, and I hope it's the story with the next thing as well. So can you talk a bit more about how the multiplexing works? Is that, so that's over a channel right now and then going to influx, right? I, I mean, it's, it's literally a bunch of pieces on the floor right now. I, right. Like, uh, this is, this is the, I, I just started on this uh, late last week. Um, and uh, the general idea is, so influx is a, a time series database, if you haven't heard about it before. The general idea is it's made more for sort of monitoring bits of infrastructure. So, uh, you know, uh, traffic counts and, uh, you know, how, how you know, the, your Redis memory consumption and those sorts of things. Um, we use, we're going to be using it to uh, track machine state or, or sta- state inside the factory. So we have sensors all over the factory floor that tell us when machines go up and down or when, a you know, a box comes down a chute or, you know, the pressure of... Uh, you know, inside a cylinder when this part was made and that sort of thing. And we take that fire hose and we do, it drives actually most of the functionality of the product, right? That's what triggers most of the, the you know, the things to actually happen um, within the app. And so we're, we're going to be using Influx um, uh, as the, essentially the, 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 the fire hose for that. So it's going to be pulling in signals off the floor. Um, and then multiplexing them out to all the places in the app where we need to do things with that, right? So the, cl- like the, the, the easy and obvious example is like firing out to a WebSocket so that we can have a, uh, you know, a screen on the factory floor respond every time the machine draw, you know, every time the machine goes down, it can list out the pressures of the various sensors. And, you know, this was so many pounds and that was, you know, so whatever, all the different numbers that they need to know on the floor. Um, but it also drives things like, um, uh, reporting, right? We used it. We're going to be using this to feed into our reporting pipeline, so that plant managers can know all these things as well, sort of in more aggregate. Um, and um, I don't know. I'm just really hoping. I, I'm really quite keen that you know it's one of those things, like I was just saying about you know that bit is infrastructure, you know, and we've sort of identified that whole part of the product is like that's an infrastructure concern, and there really isn't. I mean, there's some domain in it, but for the most part, you're taking in a fire hose and you're sending it out to a bunch of other consumers based on some subscription method, right? And the the uh, the Phoenix bit in the middle is essentially just going to be the one that manages those subscriptions. So I'm mm-hmm. curious because my understanding of factory automation is that it's all very old school and it's written in old programming languages. Well, it's sort of, it is and it isn't. So the there's there's sort of a bit of a divide uh, in the field. There's, there's so you, you let's imagine you've got this... Um, this 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 giant press that's stamping down every ten seconds and making like a, a car hood, right? And so that thing is, you know, this gigantic cast iron thing that's, you know, let's say twenty years old. This this machine, and then next to it, they've got what they call PLCs, programmable logic controllers, and they're essentially, mm-hmm. they're uh, most of them aren't actually even like computers or, or or microprocessors in the sense that like we use the term. A lot of these things are, you know, these these really, really simple little eight bit microcontrollers, um, you know, that know that when these when 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 this switch closes, one point five seconds later they open up this other switch or which maybe activates a you know, a RAM that pushes a part out or something. And um, that's a whole genre of specialization in the factory space. They're called controls engineers. 
and they you know they play with they 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 not play with but they program these things to do very sort of simple you know task but they 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 need to be absolutely bulletproof because they literally control like a 20 ton machine right like it's it's there there is no avenue for you know they don't run operating systems they don't you know they don't um they they have no real interface to them beyond a serial port um but they do most of these devices also do export um their signals through the standard called opc which i should know this, but I think it stands for open process control. And this is like a manufacturing industry uh, system that essentially allows a piece of software on a, on a server in a factory to essentially aggregate all of these signals together and, and give us the fire hose for those. And so that's, that's the handoff to us from there. And then historically, they've used these to feed into a bunch of homegrown systems, you know, um, and they're, they're, there's been a number of attempts at this in the past, you know, for people to build these things, but it's a it's a very conservative industry generally from you know from what I've seen of it manufacturing and they're you know if it doesn't result in improvements or noticeable changes to their bottom line you know now they're generally not interested mm-hmm. so you know the 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 the, the, the sort of the, the the you know the 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 most recent wave of software I guess has caught a lot of these companies off you know off guard to some extent which is where I think you know we found we've managed to find success but there's a number of other players in the space as well doing similar things. I mean, it seems like a really good fit for Elixir, like not only with um, IoT sensors uh, along the line, but also this sort of monitoring where you are taking the, this data in from everywhere and then filtering it out. Yeah, it, 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 it's fun because, I mean, the initial, the, the initial take of this, so as I said, like I've been working with, the, with, this, with these guys on and off for years. And um, I was, you know, I, I was there, I, have the, I think I have the third commit in the repository from like 2013 or something. Um, and you know, the initial version of it, the initial build it was in rails, you know, and, and because largely that's what there was at the time. And for any of the web facing parts of it, it's, it's great. We still have, we, we still run a dual stack setup like a lot of companies do. Uh, and we, you know, we, we have plans to move the rails, the, 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 the crud stuff over to Elixir, but it's pretty low on the priority list. Um, where Ruby really, really fell over was any of this pipeline style stuff, any of this event queue stuff. You know, and especially with 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 scheduling is another great example, right? Ruby's just Rails is just not designed to do that, you know. And you'd have rake tasks running in the background, like it was just a dog's breakfast of you know mm-hmm. stack. So Elixir was a real breath of fresh air with that, where it's got this sort of on like long term process model, right? Where you can just have things running that just do what they need to when they when they need to, and when they don't, they just sit there quietly. And it's also nice to have that in the same um, like operating system program as opposed mm. to in the rails world where you pass something off to redis and then you yeah. have a separate process consuming it and you have to think about well which what are the chunks of data i'm passing around has it been reified does it know about this thing that happened over there yeah exactly Just keeping everything in one bucket i find exactly. eliminates a whole class of bugs yeah and even like serialization was is like the performance of serialization has been an issue for us as well you know, like when we throw stuff on and off queues, every one of those is, uh, you know, is a serial is, is a is a pair of serialization operations that, you know, yeah. when you're when you're, you know, dealing with fire hoses, they can be pretty, you know, pretty high traffic that that alone takes a, a, a big chunk out of your out of your CPU budget, mm-hmm. you know, and, and just due to the way that we deploy this, we don't really we, we have more or less a fixed CPU budget. We can't add more servers. We can't really scale horizontally. Hmm. Right. So we give people a VM image and it just has to fit in there. I'm curious now, like, have you looked at GenStage as something to fit in the middle of your kind of... Oh my goodness, have we? 
I, I would, I would love nothing better than to spend the next six months of my life porting all of our stack over to it. Um, the, it, it seems like such a perfect fit. We're, we're hamstrung really with just a single library and that's, uh, that's, that's our Kafka library. Um, so we use Kafka as our, as our, as our event, as our message bus and our, our event queue. And, um, the state of the art in Kafka libraries in Elixir is just not great. Is the short answer. Um, they have this re- they have this weird sort of process inversion where they insist on owning the process tree and they just basically give you a module that they call a function on. Um, so we have like a a little hacked up stub that sits underneath that. That's got I've got I've got a small PR pending against the against um, Kafka X for this um, that allows you to essentially push that out to a separate process. Um, and it's, you know, it's not, it's not rocket science stuff, but it's, it's, you know, it's really frustrating when you're fighting against what's such, with such a core part of your, of, of our, of our tooling, you know, and it, it really prevents us from taking more of a, more of a gen stage style approach to it. Mm-hmm. That having been said, like it's, 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 it's way up on our hit list to start moving over to that. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, it seems like a perfect fit for yeah, you Yeah, it really like, does. <laughs> yeah. We've had, we've had many a conversation about this around the office. So yeah, I bet. And it must be nice to think about ditching Kafka and getting rid of the JVM as well. Then. Well, I, I think we're going to keep Kafka around because we, we, because we just for a bunch of other reasons, I think it's, I think it's going to stick around in our, in our, in our, in our, in our toolkit, but it would be nice to have a library that allowed you to essentially just have a producer that was, you know, that, that, that pulled things in from Kafka. Mm-hmm. You know, and, 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 and otherwise just acted like a good gen stage citizen and others just stayed out of your way. Right, right. That sounds like an ideal open source project right there, Matt. <laughs> I don't know if you've had if you've ever had the misfortune of diving into Kafka, but it's a pretty horrendously complicated protocol from what I've seen. I actually yeah, I haven't ever yet, but yeah. uh yeah. Is it's designed to work at like just unimaginable scale, right? So when right. you when you look at it in isolation just as a simple message queue on a single machine like 90 percent of it is like why is this even like we have no need for this part of it but that's that's what makes it so great is the fact that it scales up to you know infinity size essentially yeah no definitely sounds like it's worthy of the name Mm. (laughs) indeed Desmond just coming in there with the, the knowledge bombs I've actually been in the other room this whole time I just like heard Kafka and I was like sing rattle shot Oh, wow. Well, I mean, Matt, so I'm super glad that we uh, got to talk to you all about kind of all of these elixir things and Skedex and all the things that you're doing. Um, where can we see you next? Are you going to be doing any other talk appearances or anything like that? Uh, I'm in the midst of uh, our, our, so our basement is actually getting uh, completely dug out and getting three feet added to it height wise. So it's like my, my summer is shot uh, and I'm plan on picking up a bunch of stuff in the spring in the fall rather um the microsecond thing i believe is probably going to be my next my next parlor trick um i think it, i think it would make a decent somewhat more technical talk than the last mpex talk but i'm going to try and land that uh at a ta- at a conference somewhere in the in the in the in the fall or the, or the, or the winter is my hope um other than that i'm at the toronto lecture meetup pretty much every month so um not that either of you is in toronto but Maybe there's some listeners out there. There's, who a, are. there's actually a pretty decent elixir scene in Toronto. Pager Duty's here. They do a bunch of work. Um, uh, there's a couple of Erlang Solutions guys that are here. The Precision Nutrition guys do a bunch of Erlang. There's a there's a decent there's a decent crowd of it here. Awesome. So maybe Desmond and I should come out there sometime. Well, listen, we I know at, at the after party at MPEX we were talking about doing MPEX North. 
So <laughs> we were. How many beers in were? Oh, we it, was, it was several beers in at that point. It was several beers in. That's just a ski trip. <laughs> Skiing around here. This is this is Toronto, not Vancouver. We have no fun in the winter. All right, we'll have MPEX north of Vancouver then. <laughs> there, done. Cool. Well, um, do we hope to see you maybe at uh, ElixirConf? I may be there. TBD. Okay, Business cool. may take me there, and if it does, you you can bet I'll be there. Great. Well, thanks. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, you two. This was a, this was a real pleasure. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. And uh, yeah. any of our listeners who want to get in touch with Matt, we'll uh, have a link to him and his company in the show notes. Yeah, and we'll definitely link out to uh, Skedex as well in case anyone wants to check it out or contribute maybe as I well. Would, contributions, as always, are more than welcome. So. Cool, man. Look forward to it. Thanks again. Always a pleasure to hang out. And um, cheers. We'll see you next time. Great. Thanks, gentlemen. All right. Thanks, Matt.